Uh, you may be seated. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Let us give attention to God's Word this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for this wonderful psalm uh, and just the beautiful picture that it, it paints and to reminds us uh, who you are. Lord, we, we know this psalm. We've, we've heard the psalm a lot and the things that uh, it entails. Uh, but God, uh, we need to be reminded this morning of uh, not only what it means, but Lord, even what it means to walk by faith, uh, to, um, to obey the things that we see here. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it's been exciting to uh, hear especially from the kids, but from others as well, just how they've been taking the time to uh, memorize this psalm as we've been going through this as a series. I've seen videos on Facebook. I've had kids catch me after church and tell me, Pastor Rick, I've memorized Psalm 23 and stuff. And that just really does my heart good to, to hear that. Because Psalm 23 is a fantastic psalm. And there's so much in this psalm worth noting that I feel like as we're going through this, we're just sort of scratching the surface of everything that is there. I mean, for example, uh, being uh, a sheep, being a, a child of God, is not about living life in the sheep pen. It's, it's not about just hanging out with other Christians at church, sort of that holy huddle. But as we see it described here in this psalm, that the Christian life is, is a journey. It's, it's a walk. It's, it's a path that the Lord takes us down. I mean, we see that in the opening verses. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And, and as you uh, think of the life as your life, as a life of faith, I, I hope you take comfort in the fact that your shepherd is there with you every step of the way. And not just with you, but Jesus is feeding you. He is comforting you. He is pursuing you when you wander from the faith. He is leading you. And, and even leading you down paths that are dangerous, but necessary for your well-being to, to go through. And so, you know, I hope you see here in this psalm sort of a, a progression that takes place. Sort of a, a sense, it opens with a sense of rest. And that's really where we are as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, is it not? There's a sense of being, being given a new life in Christ and that sense of, of rest and joy, of peace, of, of delighting, of knowing God in a way that we've never known Him before. 
uh, but also even as we become new believers, it doesn't mean that our hearts don't wander, right? And sometimes Jesus goes after us and reclaims us. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one, and, and he brings us to himself. And even in that, he then guides us and, and he leads us, protecting us from danger. And, and it's at, in those times of danger, as we're exposed to danger, that it's more apparent that God is present with us. Um, and I, I want you to notice something that I, I didn't really bring out last week as we went through verse 4. But, um, but the, if you notice the pronouns that David uses for the Lord, it really is very interesting. I mean, he starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. But as David then walks through the dangerous parts of life, there's a sense in which there's an intimacy between him and the Lord. And I want you to notice that he shifts from using the pronouns he, in other words, that guy out there is my shepherd, that the Lord out there is my shepherd, to he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you. You are with me. Your rod and your staff. There's, there's much more a sense of intimacy that David has as he goes through those difficult times. And that is because God is closest the more exposed we are to danger. It may not always feel like that as we're going through life, but that's very much the case. It's in those times that God is there with us to give us comfort. You know, that's one thing I appreciate about this psalm. It's not just sort of a, doesn't portray Christianity as sort of a pie-in-the-sky kind of religion, but one, I like, I like the term that Ian Hamilton used. He said, it's one of holy realism. You know, there, there's, there's a realism there, but it's a holy realism. There are times in the believer's life where he needs comfort, and there are dark valleys to go through, seasons of difficulties, trials, and troubles, disappointments, and heartache. And it's in those times that we need comfort, and he is there to comfort us. And so we can say, like David, you are with me. And so David um, lays that out before us. But as we move on to verse 5, David continues with that sense of holy realism. Uh, as he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, this is a beautiful picture. If you think about this, the, the sheep that have gone through the, the valley of the shadow of death and they come out and there is this table that's spread out for them. Really, it, it means a feast. Uh, God is giving this wonderful feast to his own. Even though they are surrounded by enemies, uh, he anoints their head with oil. He causes their cup to overflow. Now, at this point in time, many commentators think that there's a, a change in imagery here. That, that the first four verses, that he's really talking about Christ as our shepherd, and we are his sheep. But beginning here in verse 5, God is, is viewed as a host that's welcoming us, welcoming us as a guest to his table. And so this, this scene shifts from an outdoor scene to an indoor scene with a table and a cup. If, if you would, it, it sort of betrays this... this um, being in someone's home as a guest, or maybe even more so, a banquet hall. 
and in which we are invited to. And, and we see that because in verse 6 it says um, that we are in the house of the Lord forever. Now, other commentators would argue, though, such as Philip Keller that I referred to earlier in this series. He's a pastor who took time off to become a shepherd, and then he wrote his reflections upon Psalm 23. Philip Keller wrote a book called shepherd, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, and he argues that the imagery used in verses 5 and 6 still fits that of a shepherd leading his sheep. Keller argues that, that the high uh, summer pastures, the, the high summer ranges where the sheep grazed were referred to as the tablelands. And, and the shepherd would go and he would prepare those pastures before the sheep got there. He would prepare these tablelands before the sheep arrived. And he would do so by removing deadly weeds and other things that might harm the sheep of the tablelands. And then even as he talks about the oil, uh, Keller argues that the oil mentioned here is an, is an oil that was put on the sheep sort of as, as a, a medicine, I guess would be the best word I could think, because there were times when the sheep would, would be traveling and there would be these flies that would sort of not only buzz around the face of the sheep, but then would land on the sheep and lay their eggs, and then those eggs would become larvae, and they would sort of work their way into the skin of the sheep and then eventually poison the sheep and kill them. And so the shepherds would put this oil, this, this ointment on them uh, to kill the sheep. Now, regardless of which image you use uh, to depict God, the point is still the same. That David is portraying God's care. He's portraying God's provision for his own people. So whether God is pictured as a shepherd or as a host or we are pictured as sheep or a guest, God is attending to the needs of David and to us as we hear these words, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So I want us to look at this text this morning and really under two headings. First of all, I want us to see how the Lord serves his people. The Lord serves his people. You know, I think oftentimes when we think of the Lord and we think of service, we think of our service to him. And, and we do. We are called to serve the Lord. But here, God is attending to our needs, to the needs of his people. God is serving us. And I think too often in Reformed circles, we portray the Christian life is really nothing more than a struggle with sin and with trials and temptations and with heartaches. And sometimes I hear congregations say that to the pastor. Pastor, I appreciate you talking about our sins and our struggles, but is there not more to the Christian life than just the struggles that we have? And I think that's a fair criticism uh, that sometimes we as pastors can fall into. And so while sin and the battle with sin, the mortification of sin, is very much a part of our life, while trials and temptations and heartaches are very much a part of the Christian life, there is more that we need to acknowledge as God's people. As, as God does take us through the valley of the shadow of death, yes, but we also see that he prepares this table before us. Now, the word prepare means to arrange. God is arranging this table. He is setting it in order. He is setting in place this table. The word can even mean to ordain. Here, God is putting everything into its right place. 
God is placing before us everything we need as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's paying attention to every detail. Nothing that we need has been overlooked or left out as uh, God sets this table before us. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, do we recognize the comprehensiveness, the all-encompassing care of God for His children? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how much God does uh, to care for you? And I, and I think oftentimes when we think of God's blessings, when we think of God's care, we only think of it in terms of material things, only in terms of the things of this world. And that's not what I'm talking about. What God, do, yes, God does care for us. He does watch over us, as you know. We read in Matthew six about how you know you you look at the birds of the air and you see how God cares for them. How much more, Jesus says, does the Father care for you who are made in His image? So yes, there is that aspect, but but God does so much more for us than just what is material. Uh, he cares for our very souls. And, and I guess I just wonder, you know, as we think about that, do we think about God's care? It, it is wonderful. It's so important for us to grasp this picture of who God is as the one who is our provider. Uh, have you ever thought about the fact that even before sin entered the world, that God already had a plan for our salvation as His people? He had already had a Savior who would come and who would die for us. And even now, the, I don't know if you think about this, but the Lord Jesus Christ is, has gone to prepare an eternal home for us where we will spend with Him in all eternity forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. What a glorious thing. So our Lord has everything prepared. He's already prepared all of our trials. All of our valleys, He's prepared even the mountaintop experiences that we will have. Uh, we are never outside of His control or His love and care. He prepares a table for every single believer. But we also read here in this text that He does so in the presence of our enemies. Now, uh, picture David here. He's seated at a table with all of those who are His enemies. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture... David speaks of those who are even his close friends who actually turn out to be his enemies. If you would, turn over to Psalm 41 and verse 9. And David says this. He goes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate at my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Even the person who I considered a really good friend. He had food over at my house, and yet he turned out to, to be against me. And then in Psalm 55, verse 12, David says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals instantly with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. That is the one who is his enemy. And of course, if, if you take this as a continuation of the shepherd imagery, then the enemies would be the wild beast and the thieves that would be uh, in the higher pasture lands. 
But but it fits the context of the enemies surrounding David at the table. If you if you take the idea of David eating a meal with his enemies, and so here is David at this table of provision that the Lord gives, and his enemies are there, and and yet it is enough even with his enemies there that the Lord is serving David. That is sufficient enough for David. He doesn't have to worry about his enemies because God is giving him everything he needs. Now, we may not have enemies in our families. We may not have enemies amongst our friends like David did. But, but all of us have enemies, even David did in his day, the three enemies that we wrestle with, which is Satan, the ungodly world in which we live, and, and even our own sinful flesh. Of course, Satan is sort of the ringleader that likes to use the world and our flesh against us to seek to, to bring us down. But, but notice here that in spite of these three enemies, with all their knowledge of who we are and knowing how to tempt us, I mean, is not Satan masterful in bringing just the right temptation at the right time to come against us? But as one commentator says, even though they have all of that, they are forced to witness my enjoyment without being able to disturb it. Did you hear that? That, that all these enemies are forced to witness our enjoyment without being able to stop that enjoyment. They want to do everything they can. Our enemies hate us. They, they want to destroy us. They want to kill us. And I don't know if we, we think about that, how hostile Satan is against us, but that is that the evil that he desires to bring upon us, but he can do nothing unless God allows him to do so. And so even though we ever live in the sight of our enemies who want to kill us, all that Christ has given us is sufficient. Do we believe that, brothers and sisters? You know, as, as the world is putting pressure on you to compromise, as the world is pushing this agenda that, that you read in, on, online or in the newspaper or however you get your news, as, as you see that agenda that's being pushed and the shame that comes to those who go against that agenda, uh, do you believe this? Do you believe that all that you have in Christ is sufficient. And so you don't need to worry about those things. Your eyes are so focused upon the Lord. As you are tempted by sin, maybe the besetting sin that you struggle with, the sin that you seem to always give into, you know, do you believe that Christ has prepared a feast for you, putting everything in place to serve you, giving you all that you need? We need to remember, brothers and sisters, what Paul said in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, that's not where our battle is. Any, any human enemy that we might have, and it's very possible that you have those in your life that are seeking to make your life miserable. It might be a boss at work. It might be your neighbor. It might be even someone in your own household. But, but Paul reminds us that that's not where our battle is with that person. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to say, For we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, we don't always realize, I think, who we're up against. 
and, and how advanced and how mighty and how powerful they are. And so how much we need God's protection. But, but as we come to his table, we have that protection. And that's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, and this is a verse I've used, uh, I've shared it a couple times to you recently. 1 Peter uh, 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But if you go on to that passage, Peter also says to the congregation, he says, resist him, firm in your faith. Okay, in other words, don't give in to Satan, even though he's seeking to devour you. And then in verse 10, he goes on and he says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And I think that's the picture that we see here. As we're coming out of the valley of the shadow of death, there is this table that's laid out before us, okay? And where God is, is serving His people, and He is restoring us, and He is confirming us, and He is strengthening us, and He is establishing us, even though our enemies are right there around us. And they can't even touch us. Our enemies want to destroy us, but they can't because the Lord is with us. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that not only is the Lord with us, but He lives in us. What, what does Paul say to the church of Colossae in chapter 1? He said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Or, or as uh, John writes to his uh, followers, 1 John 4, 4, he said, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Spirit of God that lives within us is greater than, than Satan himself. And so we see the Lord serving his people. But also we see, second of all, the Lord satisfies his people. He not only serves His people, but He also satisfies His people. And God satisfies us as He serves us. We read uh, on in the verse, He says, You anoint my head with oil. Now, I, you know, just think about your life and the things you go through and sometimes the struggles that you have in life. And it might be a struggle with a temptation. It might be a struggle to be discouraged. It might be a struggle to worry. It might be a struggle with anger. You know, whatever the struggle is. You know, in those times when you are struggling, wouldn't it be enough for the Lord to give you strength and protection in the midst of those difficult struggling times? But we see here that the Lord does more than that. That He gives us a table filled with good things. What a glorious bonus. And then we read here, He says, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, it's, it's difficult to know exactly what he means by the oil that he says here, but if, he, if this is the imagery of a host who is inviting a guest into his home, then it may refer to the Middle East tradition uh, or practice of a host who would bring a weary guest into his home, who had been on a long journey, traveled many miles, had been in the hot sun, and he was hot and dry and weary, and the host, what he would do is he would take oil and pour it on his head and let it run down onto the person's face. 
Now, we would listen to that and you would think, Pastor Rick, if I ever come over to your house and you pour oil on my head, we're going to have words, okay? You know, that just doesn't sound so cool with us, okay? But that's because we get out of our air-conditioned car, you know, and walk the, you know, 50 feet to the house to you know, ring the doorbell and we come in and we're all refreshed. But for them, they were hot. And so they would welcome that oil as it poured down onto the face and onto the beard, uh, there would be a sense of refreshment and a sense of renewal, and it would revive them. And, and the Bible talks a lot about oil in that way. It talks about the oil of gladness. Uh, let me just read you a few verses. Um, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61 and verse 3. Isaiah says, To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We see someone here who has the oil of gladness poured upon them, sort of that refreshment, that renewal. Um, Psalm 45, verse 7. Psalm 45, verse 7. And you, you may recall as we went through the book of Hebrews, chapter, particularly in chapter 1, verse 9, uh, the writer quotes from Psalm 45, 7, and where we read, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, the oil of gladness is a joy in the face of darkness and danger and difficulties. Uh, you know, God doesn't simply give us the gospel so that we can grit our teeth and bear it as we go through the difficult times. But the gospel comes to fill our hearts with joy, brothers and sisters. Is there a sense of joy in your heart as a result of the good news of Jesus Christ? A joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. You know, I, I think it's just unfortunate that, you know, Presbyterians are oftentimes referred to as the frozen chosen. You know, I, I understand that, and I've even joked about that myself, because, you know, I'm Presbyterian, and I can poke fun at us. That's, that's fine. But the reality is that ought to be so far from the truth of any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that there aren't times when life is difficult and hard and we might feel the, the pressure and the temptations. I mean, you look at the life of Job. But really, underlying all of these things, regardless of the circumstances, is this joy. And so David could be referring to the refreshing graces of God of that reviving our parched souls in the midst of life's heated trials and, and, uh, and how that gives us great joy as believers. But, but he could also be referring to um, David being anointed as king. And that might be what you think of when you think of an anointing, someone like a king or a prophet uh, or a priest that's being anointed. They would have the oil that would be poured upon the head, especially in the sense of a king to be, to represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon that person granting the wisdom needed to fulfill that, their kingly duties. And so in this case, this anointing would be uh, the empowering of the Holy Spirit that David needed to fulfill what God had called him to do. And, and we know that as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and he is presently active in every one of us as Christians uh, at work in us. You know, even uh, Jesus himself was anointed with the Spirit as he began his public ministry. And likewise, the Lord has anointed you with the power to live the Christian life in his presence. And so, uh, as we look at this anointing, it's a sense of joy, uh, most likely the presence of the Holy Spirit as well. But it is the Holy Spirit that comes to us and brings us the fruit of the blessing of Jesus Christ into our daily lives. And and the Holy Spirit, uh, when He does so, He floods our souls. As David puts it, my cup overflows. You see, God is not at hand simply to protect us from our enemies, but to overwhelm us with His blessing and His presence. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever consider the Christian life in that way? That God is present with you to overwhelm you with His blessings and His presence. And yet we see that oftentimes through the Scripture. As God appears to people and He speaks to them, they are overwhelmed with who He is. You see, God doesn't simply come to give us the bare minimum to help us cope with life. You know, I I wonder if sometimes that's what we think. And I wonder if sometimes that's not what's reflected in our prayer life because we think, oh, God's just going to give me the minimum. So we just sort of pray minimally to the Lord rather than praying expectantly, pray rather than praying powerfully, rather than praying in a great way before the Lord. And sometimes I wonder if our God is too small. Well, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, a verse very, we're all very familiar with this. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, do you ever think about that? I mean, we've heard that verse so many times that we just sort of take it for granted. We're conquerors in Jesus Christ. Actually, that's not what he said. He said, We're more than conquerors. I like the way one person put it. They said, we actually, what that says, that verse says, is we are hyper-conquerors through Him who loved us. Now, you may say this morning, especially with the time change and the weather and everything that's been going on, you may say, Pastor Rick, I don't feel like a hyper-conqueror this morning. Okay? And, And that's okay. You know, be that what it may be. The reality is, so if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are in union with Christ and by faith you are a hyper conqueror whether you feel like it or not you are a hyper conqueror you have conquered uh, with Christ and so you can say this morning my cup overflows that's the reality of the Christian life we may not acknowledge that we may not realize that but that's the reality of what is going on in the life of a believer it sort of reminds you of the way that John put it in John chapter 1 Uh, verse 16 he said for from his fullness we have all received in other words the fullness of God okay from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace isn't that a great phrase grace upon grace it's not just that we've received grace but we've received grace upon grace more upon more God gives and he gives and he gives again And, and David is referring to the continual 
outpouring of God's fullness into his life. There's a sense of abundance that David wants us to realize that we receive in Jesus Christ. What, what a beautiful picture. An overflowing cup. Now, why does a cup overflow? Kids, let me ask you. If I take a, a, a cup and I put it under the faucet and I turn that faucet on and the cup starts to fill up and it gets fuller and fuller and then all of a sudden it gets to the top and it just begins to keep pouring over and over and over. Why does that happen? Why does it happen? Well, because the supply is greater than that which is receiving it. And, and that's what happens with us. Because God's supply far exceeds our needs. Do you hear me? God's supply far exceeds our need. Here again, I'm not just talking about um, material things. I'm talking about spiritual things. And those things when we're tempted to, to struggle, to worry, to fear, to be anxious. Those things where, where we oftentimes are, are struggling in our lives. God's supply far exceeds our needs. And so this speaks of the abundance of the Lord's provisions. Now, can you imagine what our lives would look like if we lived according to the Lord's provision as He gives to us? I mean, can you imagine what our witness would be like in the world around us if we lived according to the Lord's perfection, or provision, excuse me, a feast in the midst of our enemies, oil of gladness, the Holy Spirit that that is greater than my need. Well, we see this throughout Scripture. It, we may not recognize it, but I just think about Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were put in prison. They were done so under false pretenses. They really didn't do anything wrong except ruin someone's business. And so they were put in prison, but it doesn't just say they were put in prison. Actually, in Acts 16, 24, it says that they were put in the inner prison. Okay, they were really secured. As a matter of fact, uh, in the text it says that their feet were chained in the stocks. And so here they are, falsely accused, in prison, uh, very secure, and uh, what's their response? Well, we read in Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? What, what if we were falsely accused this week and the police showed up at our house and they took us to jail and they threw us in jail? How many of us would be up at midnight singing praises to God and uh, praying to Him? I mean, so much so that it says that the other prisoners could hear them. Um, so there must have been a sense of, of joy in, in them, not just a sense of, of, of bitterness or anything like that. Well... Uh, you know the story, there was an earthquake, the doors were open, but nobody escaped. And so the, the prison uh, uh, guard came in, and, and he came before Paul and Silas, and he fell before them, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, and, and you see, like the prisoners, I'm guessing that this jailer had most likely heard Paul and Silas singing and praising God. And, and he was probably wondering, how could these men be so joyful in the face of hardship? Well, because God prepares a table before them in the presence of their enemies. He anoints their heads with oil. His cup overflows. You know, these words in Psalm 23, 5, 
are really not only the confession of King David um, before his people, but it's also the, conf- the same confession that Jesus Christ had, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, if you think about Christ's life, as Jesus journeyed to the cross, his enemies surrounded him to destroy him. Jesus, while he's in the valley of the shadow of death, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to God, he experienced the Father's protection and provision. Jesus could say to the Father, you are with me. And he knew that his Father was with him. And so he could face the cross because God was with him. Now, you might be saying, now wait, Rick, Pastor, didn't you just say last week that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that... He said to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, didn't Jesus experience God's abandonment on the cross? So how could you say that he received the Father's provision and that the Father was with him? Well, Jesus did say those words, but but not as his as to his person. Okay? As the mediator and the God man in our place, bearing our sins, yes. He experienced the Father's abandonment. But in Himself, He was ever the eternal Son, and He was upheld by the Father. If you remember the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 1, the Lord says about the Messiah, He says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold. Well, Jesus was never more upheld than when He was hanging and bleeding and broken on the cross for our sins. Jesus was upheld by the Father. Jesus experienced that provision that God promises to His people. Promise provision in the face of trials. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Brothers and sisters, as we leave this place today, I want you to see God's lavish provision for you. I want you to see that it is a provision they cannot be contained. Now, there is a cost to following Christ. Okay, I don't want to downplay that. Jesus was made that very clear. He said, you know, you build a building, you know, don't you first of all sit down and sort of figure out what this is going to cost you? And, and then you decide, okay, yeah, I want to do this or not. He goes, it's the same way with following me. You need to count the cost. You need to think about this. This will cost you something. But, but I want us to see also that there is a glorious provision that God gives to His children as we do follow Him. That God is the one who gives and He gives and He gives again. And so it's no wonder uh, that Paul says to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3 verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do what? Far more abundantly. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. My question for you this morning is, do you ask great things from God? Do you ask great things from God? Do you ask things from God that are consistent with His character? Or do you only ask things that you think are appropriate to ask? Let me ask you this. Do you, do you ever dream of things regarding God's kingdom, but, but you don't put those into words because they seem too extravagant? You think, you know, I'd, I'd love to see this happen. I'd love to see more people come to faith in Christ. I'd love to see this. I'd love to see that. I, you know, 
but I don't really pray for those things because those things seem too much. I, you know, I have family members that that I would love to see be believers, but you know what? I don't really see. You know, I've just known them, uh, and and we don't say this, but we act as if you know. I, I would love to see them be believers, but I really don't think that God can save them. That's just the bottom line. I can't I can't envision that person as being a Christian, and so we don't pray for them. We don't ask God. But but what does he say? That he he asked God to do that which is far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Even those things we dream about that we think, oh, I'd love to ask God those, but we don't put them in words because they seem too big. He said, go ahead and ask him. He is able to do those things. Do you ever think that it's too much to ask God for, and then you fill in the blank? Well, you can't ask God for too much, brothers and sisters. Uh, you can't ask God for too much when you're praying for things that will bring glory to Him. This is not the prosperity gospel. Pray and ask God for a new you know, sports car or pray for a bigger bank account. That's not what I'm saying. But when it comes to praying for His kingdom and His glory, we have to be extravagant in what we pray for because His provision is equal. Actually, no, it's not equal to that. It's more abundant than that. Remember, our cup overflows. Brothers and sisters, what a God we have. What a gospel do we have. Do we believe that though? Let us live according to that. The greatness of our God and the gospel message that he has given to us. Please bow your heads with me this morning if you would. And let's meditate upon these things. Lord, we thank you so much as we come this morning for your word that you've given to us, for the reminder that you are a great host that has prepared a table for us, and, and you have provided for us so abundantly and so joyfully. And Lord, we, we come to you this morning, and as we hear this word, and you sort of shake us out of our, our tree of comfort, out of our positions of complacency, uh, Lord, I, I pray that um, you would so work in our hearts to see the greatness of who you are, O oh God, and your mighty provision. And Lord, I pray that, that we would pray accordingly, that we would walk by faith accordingly, 
knowing that you are a great and a mighty God, especially, Lord, as we hear news this week or things that, that seem to, to shake us, God, things that uh, sort of upset our world. Lord, may you bring these words to mind, that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that you anoint our head with oil, that our cup overflows, and let our hearts once again be firmly grounded and, and firmly rooted in, in your character. Lord, may you stir our hearts to praise you and to continue to walk by faith. Lord, and to share that faith with those that we come in contact with as well. We praise you, O oh Lord, that you are a mighty, great God. And I pray, God, that you would help us as a church, not just as families or as individuals, but as a church to, to pray and to, to minister as well in this way. God, challenge us to think huge according to who you are. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.